You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. Hopefully, everybody's doing well. I am in the middle of working on some layout and plans for clients. I'm on the road next week again with a client, and um, I've got some of my, my own projects. I'm working on my own property. I was consulting with uh, my partner today, and we're dealing with a lot of drought across the Northeast, and I want to try to drought-proof my property. I've got some ideas and things I've recommended when I've consulted, and I need to apply some of those same recommendations on my own property. So to behold myself to a higher standard, or at least a standard that I recommend, I'm trying to make some changes on the landscape. It's water management is a huge piece of the puzzle and emphasizing, you know, drought tolerant properties and thinking about this over the multiple podcasts we've done is thinking about the utilization of water that could be, you know, creating ponds um, that could be managing water with swales or ditches or trenches. It's just utilizing that resource. And when you need it and it's available to you, that, that makes all the property that much better. And, I think most of us could say when Perry Batten was on this previously and we talked about, you know, applying about, you know, 30 to 40,000 gallons per acre to get, you know, adequate, you know, water across his food plots for the jury boys. You know, that just seems like a whole lot of work and resources and, and there are alternatives to that as well. So I may talk a little bit about how to drought proof your property. And it's not just plants, you know, plants obviously help the water retention and moisture issues, but it's thinking more about, you know, landscape shaping. And uh, I can provide some examples and actually maybe some of the stuff we'll talk about today. I have a a new guest on, Eric Lance, and I'm going to let him introduce himself. I wanted to have somebody with, with a science background, but has practical application that has some real world experience, has done a lot of projects you know, all across the board, whether they're wetlands, you know, any type of project related to environmental changes and thinking more about the ecology of things. And he's a great guest. He has been on multiple other podcasts. He has his own podcast, which we'll talk about. And I'd I'd suggest everyone listens to that, but we'll get him and uh, we'll get him on today. We're going to talk, we're going to go left on you. We're going to talk about waterfowl today, but we're going to integrate some deer stuff into that conversation as well. Hey, Eric, how are you? Good, man. How you doing? Good, good. 
Hey, I want to just quickly, you know, have you introduce yourself to the audience. You know, this won't be our first go around. We'll have multiple conversations, but I kind of want to have them just quickly about your background and then maybe talk a little bit about what you want to talk about today. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So my name is Eric Lance. Um, I am a wildlife biologist here in Northeast Ohio service, pretty much, you know, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, kind of the surrounding States is kind of my primary footprint. Um, I have my own company called Land Source Consulting, where I do not only private landowner uh, habitat work and consulting, but I also do a lot of large-scale environmental permitting work, uh, you know, for utility companies, development companies, you know, other construction companies, you know, pretty much anything that needs environmental permitting or anything like that, I pretty much handle. Um, I also have the Hunt Science Podcast, which I'm the host and the creator of. You can find it on uh, the video portion of the podcast on YouTube, of course, and then the audio platforms. Uh, all your major ones, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, you know, all those different types of platforms. You can find us there if you'd like audio uh, versions of the podcast themselves. Um, or you can go and find more information about us on our uh, website, huntsignspodcast.com. And, uh, yeah, man, that's pretty much the best way to get a hold of me. It gives all avenues for people to reach out to me and find all the stuff that I'm doing. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And please, you know, folks follow along, you know, with Eric and uh, let's kind of get into the topic. And this, okay. you know, we've, we've done a bunch of different conversations you and I have had offline, but we've also, you know, we, in, in this podcast, we've talked about different areas and, and focus points. Um, we've done, you know, grouse, we've done turkey. Um, we want to talk a little bit about waterfowl. And I want you to kind of give a little bit of background on, on your experience with waterfowl and then you know, kind of diagnose some of the concerns and issues that you're seeing across the landscape and your perspective on how to either remedy those or, or kind of evaluate those further. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I'm a wildlife biologist. I'm not a, you know, I don't really specialize in one thing. I know a lot of people, you know, will say, Hey, you know, I, I specialize in white tail. I specialize in upland game birds or forestry or, you know, whatever it is. So as biologists, you know, it, it's kind of like the medical field. I mean, you're a biologist that, Okay, that's that that's great, but what's your kind of niche? What's your specialization? You know, for me, I started off early in my career. I, I was involved working for a company out of undergrad where, you know, I was the diversified guy. I was the gray man. So, you know, I would go over, I would be doing, you know, fish shocking, you know, macroinvertebrate studies. I would be doing some timber work. I'd be doing some environmental permitting, some avian surveys, you know, I mean, you name it, the list went on. So, you know, from a very early on in my career, I became a, you know, more of a generalist. Now, as I've, you know, gotten older and as I've, you know, gotten into, you know, more of uh, the wildlife world myself, you know, I would say that my emphasis is on game species, um, target species that are, you know, popular for hunting. So that could be, you know, large mammals like white-tailed deer. It could be, you know, going after predator management, but also I'm a big bird guy. So I would say over the past five years or so, I've really gotten into, you know, upland game birds. Um, I've got my uh, German shorthair pointers that are a couple years old, and that really solidified my my interest in the upland game bird, you know, side of things with pheasants and quail and grouse and things like that. Um, but that also moved me into, you know, getting into more waterfowl hunting that I tended to stay away from early on because I, I knew, <laughs> well, I knew like most of us, we start hunting something new and we're like, Oh my gosh, like it's, it's super exciting. And you get into it and I knew it was going to consume me. Well, you know, a buddy of mine invited me out first waterfowl hunt, smacked a couple mallards and it was just on from there. So, you know, I've been pretty involved in, um, our local branch of Delta waterfowl. I'm a member of Delta waterfowl, you know, member of ducks unlimited, 
um, you know, all the different conservation organizations I support. Um, you know, but that got me more into the habitat side of, of waterfowl, uh, you know, working closely with, you know, mallards and, and their, their habitat and nesting needs, um, you know, here in Ohio. So, yeah, that's kind of where the thing started with waterfowl. Um, I'm probably going to be starting a PhD program here pretty soon to be uh, doing something more specifically related to waterfowl, but that's still in the works. So and that's kind of where kind of the, the Cliff Notes version, if you will, and how I got into waterfowl. Yeah, no, it's very interesting and it's good background for everyone to kind of recognize, you know, your vast experience. And I appreciate that. And you're a practitioner as well, right? You're in the field you're making yes. recommendations and that, and that's huge. And, and that's why I wanted to have you on the podcast. Uh, in addition to that, we're going to, you know, hopefully in the future have you diagnosing more of some of the papers. We want to look at the educational side of things and taking some of that information and applying it and giving people kind of some real life, you know, examples of, you know, this is what was learned. This is what was studied. And then a part of that, this is how you apply it. And, and that's where we think, you know, you could add a lot of value to the, the overall podcast. All right. So let's, let's get into some of the issues widespread and then let's like drill it down to the landscape scale. And then let's look at, you know, maybe some specific opportunities for clients that have water resources or, or, or don't have water resources and how they can benefit their property from the standpoint of habitat design development for ducks specifically. And obviously it's going to be, you know, species dependent, et cetera. And you can caveat and provide your explanations, but that's kind of what, what I want to go with on this combo. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I would say if you narrow it down, when it comes to waterfowl, one of the biggest issues that we have is a reduction of, of wetland habitat, of, of quality wetland habitat. So I mentioned that, you know, I do a lot of environmental permitting. So I spend a lot of time on, um, you know, the pre-project planning for, you know, construction projects, whether it's a, a utility project, whether it's a, a big commercial development project, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, the good wetland habitat is is really hard to come by. You've got a lot of organizations out there, like Ducks Unlimited, for example, does a great job you know, as far as building and restoring wetland habitat, you know, across their range. Um, they, they do a lot of those things. And anybody that, you know, follows an, any Ducks Unlimited member or staff member on uh, like LinkedIn or those other social media profiles, you're going to see a, a plethora of projects that they're getting involved with. So, you know, the reduction of, of wetland, quality wetland habitat. I'm not going to go crazy because um, I know, you know, we're kind of time constrained on this episode. But, you know, when it comes to a wetland, wetlands are not, you know, they don't, have to have water they don't have to have visible water so you can have you know basically there's three types of wetlands there's emergent wetland systems there's um uh, scrub shrub wetland systems and forested wetland systems and those are the three that we'll kind of talk about emergent wetland systems are those wetlands that are non-woody uh vegetative in nature so those are the wetlands that you're going to see maybe in, in a field you know that's got some standing water and it's got wetland vegetation and, and things like that in it then as you start getting a little bit closer closer to, you know, timber stands, you start getting some brambles, you start getting some shrubs and things that are more conducive for wetland environments, you start getting what we call scrub shrub wetland, right? So that one's going to have a little a little mosaic of some woody vegetation mixed in with that non-woody uh, herbaceous, you know, vegetation that you would see in an emergent wetland. And then you're going to have what's called a forested wetland, which obviously, as it describes, is going to be within a, a forested complex. So, you know, you're looking at those areas are going to be, you know, highly beneficial for wood ducks, as an example, right? Because wood ducks, you know, uh, roost and, and stuff and in, in nest in trees. And then, you know, obviously the water resource for food and, and things like that. So, you know, forested wetland habitat is, is the highest quality 
um, if you get a category three, because all the wetlands are rated between one, two, and three. So I would say the number one thing is a reduction of, of quality wetland habitat. And there's a lot of resources out there, depending on what state that you live in. So in Ohio, you know, you have the H2 Ohio program. Um, that's, I, I, if I remember right, I think it's starting to get revamped a little bit to have a larger emphasis on wetland ecosystems and restoring wetlands, but you have other programs through the NRCS and, and things like that, that if you're a landowner that has, you know, a wetland on your property, or maybe you want to construct a new wetland, right? There's, you can reach out to those agencies. I would, I would suggest, cause I know your listeners are probably in multiple States and because I'm not all that familiar with all the states, I would just say reach out to your local NRCS office and, uh, you know, they can help you out getting you uh, towards some programs that can help mitigate some of the costs and, and get you some technical oversight as far as, you know, how to build these things and what your goals are and things like that. Yeah, that's, that's really good information. So, and you did mention something uh, in regards to forested wetlands and their classification and is it, what, what's the value of that across the landscape? Because you, you said that that was a priority. Yeah, so wetlands are categorized. They go by category. So you can have a category one, category two, category three. Category three is the highest quality. And there are biometrics that get used to look at what a wetlands category rating is. So here in Ohio, we use, you know, what's called the ORAM, the Ohio Rapid Assessment Method. Some other states also use our ORAM, but not all of them. And what that takes into account is, you know, it basically takes account into the size of the wetland, the location, what's the boundary of the wetland? Is it, you know, in the middle of an ag field? So is it all, you know, monocrop agriculture around the periphery or is it surrounded by mature timber? You know, so it looks at what's, or is it, you know, in the, um, I did one for a, a developer that was in a park system. So it's like manicured lawn, right? So it looks at the boundaries or the perimeter of the wetland, what's surrounding it. It looks like I said at the vegetative communities that's within it and around it. It looks at the biological markers, you know, is there, you know, quality habitat there do you you know do you are you out there and do you see did you see a salamander you know do you see you know all these different types of things so there's a big there's about a three or four page metric that goes on there and really outlines a lot of different things that as a biologist will go out there and and uh, measure. I, I would encourage if anybody's interested, to, you can just Google search ORAM, O-R-A-M. Um, the PDF is easily viewable. And, and anybody interested in, in seeing what goes into that criteria, you can look at that um, as well. That'd probably be the easiest way for your listeners to kind of understand that because it's a pretty in-depth document. Um, but just know that when we do the categorical ratings, you know, that's how they're rated between a category one, category two, category three, because when you're done with that sheet, it's going to give you a numeric value. And depending on what the numerical value is, is going to give you the range, whether it's a category one, two or three. Now, as far as the, the wetland type. So, you know, I'm, I'm, there's other subtypes of wetlands, but I'm, I'm going broad here with the emergent, the scrub shrub and the forested. Yeah. When it comes to restoration and, and things like that, because if you impact or damage a wetland during construction, you have to provide that wetland back either on site or at a mitigation bank. So the emergent, I don't want to say lower quality, 
But as far as restoration goes, you know, you uh, for an emergent wetland, you don't have to replace as much as you would a forested wetland. So I'll give you an example. If you damage, let's say, a half an acre of a forested wetland, you have to put that back two to one, right? So you're gonna you're gonna increase your restoration value based on your project. So that's how they look at you know the the emergent, the scrub, shrub, the forested. It's not so much obviously a forested wetland is gonna have a lot more resources in it yeah. comparative to the others because you've got the timber component, right? You're gonna get birds species you're going to get other you know uh mammals and things like that they're going to be utilizing those areas reptiles things like that not to say that a good quality emergent wetland you know is invaluable because it is ecologically but a really good high quality category three you know forested wetland man those are special you know and i've got a property a client of mine that has one um his his property is is a waterfowler's just heaven he's got a thousand plus acres you know, here in Ohio, and they go out there during the, the spring or the migration where the birds are moving. I mean, I think I was out when I was last out there. I think we identified almost 16 species of ducks, mm. you know, wow. uh, just, just out there, you know, just running the property, you know, making, you know, notes of what we wanted to do this year. And we just were out there at the right time. And I mean, they, they were everywhere, you know, and it, it's, you look at these forested wetland complexes that he's got and you're like, Oh my Lord. Like, it's just, it's special when you come across a good one like that, but those are far and few between. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about, you know, you got the small mammal component, you've got the birds, right. You've got this, we're talking white-tailed deer mostly on this podcast. And you're just thinking about these riparian areas, you know, adjacent to some of these, you know, wetland areas and how they're managed and treated. And it's this, you know, these corridors are opportunities to enhance them. And then on top of it, you know, you're talking about the, I guess, the red tape side of things, right? Just having awareness of what you can and yeah. can't do in these different areas is really critical. The, the benefit I typically see, at least in the wetland areas, uh, particularly if there's like uh, hammocks or terrestrial sites like located within them, is, you know, that dry ground does provide a lot of opportunity for bird nesting or, you know, even deer bedding for that matter. At least people on this podcast probably think about that. Um, but the volume of cover that's in those areas is incredible. And when we're talking about ducks specifically and layout, you know, I think I, I follow this one uh, person on, on Instagram and I pay attention to his post. He does a lot of habitat work in the South and he, you know, creates these, you know, big flooded fields and, you know, kind of, kind of artificially creates interest areas. Right. And I think that's really cool on a property if you have, you know, you have the scaling opportunity, like you own a thousand acres, right? But basically water is your resource. So, you know, in those moist ground areas in concert with kind of these wetland described areas, how do you kind of manage the combination of that for ducks specifically? Because you've got a resource that you can potentially utilize, right? I guess you have limitations on disturbance, but you want to utilize or move that resource, a water resource into other locations without creating, you know, havoc to your, I guess, classed areas that are categorized as, as critical. How does that all work? Yeah. So there, there's a lot to unpack. Um, you know, I would say trying to keep it, you know, again, trying to keep this as, as short as possible here, just for your listeners, when it comes to, you know, creating wetlands and things like that, 
even if you, you really have to understand what you have on your property because you can get into some trouble if you inadvertently impact an existing wetland, you know, with the Army Corps of Engineers. So there are rules against that even in, on private ownership. So I would first and foremost, I encourage people to reach out to a, a consultant. If you want to do any type of water work on your property, such as building a pond, you know, you know, uh, uh, maintenance on an existing pond, expansion, things like that. Because depending on what you have out there, you could get yourself into a little bit of trouble. So um, I'll, I'll leave that there. The Army Corps of Engineers, like I said, you know, not not a not a bad organization by any stretch of the imagination. But you know, there are rules and regulations on managing and and you know doing work in and around water resources within uh, the United States. So I would always encourage people to do that. At least have a consultation to talk. Like, hey, this is what I'm thinking about doing. You know, and you can be you know informed of what your steps would actually actually be some instances you might not need to do anything but i always tell people as a as a caveat you know make sure you're doing that due diligence first now when it comes to you know the multi-species aspect so the thing with ducks and, and thing with managing water that makes it really good for other species is that when you're looking at like the dabbling ducks for instance the, or the puddle ducks that people call them you know, they're, they're called that because they, they really don't need a whole lot of depth to the water, right? So most ducks, you know, are typically dabblers, and, and they, they really like shallow water in order to feed, right? If you look at a species of, let's say, you know, blue wing or green wing teal, you know, you only need a few inches of water, and you'll find those birds out there. You know, now, again, it's going to depend on what's out there. What type of, of resource are you in? What type of vegetation? You know, are there, are there you know, macroinvertebrates and things like that? So, you can't just throw water in the field and think the ducks are going to come. So you got to do a little bit of investigation, you know, maybe some plantings, things like that. But as far as the water goes, you know, you don't need a whole lot. You know, other species of ducks, if you're talking about mallards and some, you know, some of the larger, you know, puddle ducks, you know, it's, you know, six, six to 12, 18 inches, something like that. Um, you know, I really tell people you don't really need to go much more than two feet. Not that you won't find them there, but you know, it, you, what I'm getting at is you don't need a whole lot of depth to the water. So a lot of times you'll see when people build in these things, they'll still have a much shallower end and then they'll have a smaller portion of it that will get a little bit deeper. So, you know, when you're looking at shallower water, obviously shallower water is easy, you know, except, uh, accessible for other species. If you're talking about, you know, everyone's favorite, you know, nest rating species, raccoons and other, you know, uh, mid-grade or mid-level, you know, mammals and things like that. You talk about if you've got a good quality area that's got some fish in it, right? You've got some fish, you've got some reptiles, you've got all different types of things. You're going to bring, you know, the the, um, the great blue herons are going to come to your property because they're going to be able to wade in that water. I mean, it's going to be from the ecological value. You're going to hit, you're going to touch the ecological needs of a wide variety of species, including white-tailed deer. I mean, if you've got, you know, most, most deer get their water from preformed water from the vegetation that they eat but of course you know they're gonna take up you know water resources that are out there as well i mean it's just it's just you know common sense so if you got you know water out there it's going to be utilized and, and with water you know you've got more clay subsoils that are underneath there that are going to hold water more that are going to produce you know other types of vegetation you look at species that i really like and favor is uh jewelweed you know jewelweed the impatience family um, is that little that plant that has like a, a, a orange uh, bulb that looks like um, it's on there. And you're going to find that in a forested system, you know, that has more marginal uh, wetland, you know, components to it. And that, actually, if I if I remember correctly, I think impatience are a wetland obligate, which means they're only found in wetland areas. 
So, you know, those things get hammered by whitetails. I mean, I go through my woods and I'll find, I know where these pockets of these impatience are. And as soon as these things start blooming and, and flowering out, I mean, they are hammered, yeah. you know, and, and it's, it just goes to show that, you know, not everything that a deer eats is what you plant. It's not, it's not a clover. It's not an oat. It's not a wheat. It's not a, you know, brassica. It's not only those things. I mean, there are these native plants that are out there that deer are going to utilize whether they're traveling to and from, you know, like you said, the, the cover component. I mean, these wetland areas can provide a lot of cover. If you're looking at grasses like Phalaris and things like that that are that are around the wetland areas, they can be very dense, and they can be a good area for a buck to lay down in. They don't have to be saturated in those areas to grow, and that vegetation can get pretty high, and they, like I said, they can nest pretty good in there. It's really good for, you know, nesting waterfowl, you know, mallards as an example. I mean, going into the, the dense grass, grasses and things like that in these areas make it very difficult to do surveys you know especially if you're trying to do brood surveys which is why we use thermal drones now you know because it's a lot easier so the ecological value you know even though whitetails aren't gonna you know use wetland areas you know a vast majority of the time i mean they they use them more than what people think so i, I gotta back you up for a second and um you brought up the point of the the depth to the wet area or the pond or depending on the size of the area. So I want to kind of get a dimension of what you typically see in the landscape where folks are creating these areas. And what when we talk about depth and the purpose of that depth, the deeper area, what's the benefit? So I would say that most of the time when I deal with wetlands, whether it's it, most of my wetland stuff is not on the private side, it's on the development side. And we really don't, for a wetland, we really don't target the wetland as a, a depth for the water. You know, what we're targeting for wetlands are the vegetative communities that are in there, and the depth just kind of happens. Now, if you are engineering a wetland, you can you can absolutely do that. There are geotechnical and environmental engineers out there that do this to where, depending on the soil media and the mixtures and things like that, you can artificially create a water table and say, hey, I want to have this area to behold, you know, two feet of water, you know, because I want to, I enjoy seeing the ducks out there. I enjoy, I enjoy the mallards and, and things like that that are out there on my property. So maybe it's just a, you know, an aesthetic thing or whatever. But as far as the wetlands go, I mean, there are people that build, you know, duck ponds, right? And, and they're, they're creating ponds, you know, so really it just depends on what they want to do with it. If your target is 100% ducks, I don't care about anything else. You know, like I said, if, if you go within the, you know, two two to three foot range, I mean, you really don't need much more than that. My, my good buddy of mine who lives down the road from me has a farm out there, and I've, I've hunted and I've harvested, God, I can't even count how many ducks. That's just literally in a puddle of a low-lying area in a cornfield. You know, it rains hard, and there might only be three to four inches of water out there. I'll set up out there, and I'll, I'll smack a daily limit you know, out there. I can't do it every day, you know, but they're out there obviously feeding on the corn and stuff that's, that's there and down. So, I mean, it's very, you know, um, opportunistic as far as the timing, but it just goes to show that they're also out there feeding on insects and things like that, that are, that are, that are caught out there. So, you know, I've gone out there and, and I've seen those ducks, I've shot those ducks, I've 
open them up and seeing what, you know, they're feeding on. And, you know, you see these things. So are, are they picking up some things otherwhere? Yeah, of course, you know, but they're there every day, every morning. They're not going to do that unless there's something there for them. So, you know, I tell people it's kind of like if you build it, they'll come, you know, if you've got it, it goes back to the wetland or to the, excuse me, the consultant, right. Taking a soil sample and looking at the soil component and what the soil tells us, how compact it is, how much does the soil ribbon, what are the geomorphic features that we're seeing in there? Is it oxidized? Is it, you know, is the iron being reduced in the soil? Like I can look at this soil and tell you a lot about the soil just by looking at it. So, you know, you can look and say, Hey, here's my water table. Right. So I tell people like the, the depth will come. It's obviously, obviously going to depend on the rain too. Right. How much rain, I mean, we're in a drought here in Ohio. So it's like, you know, you got a, you know, wetland right now, you're not going to have a whole lot of water there. You know, but during the rainy season, you know, how much is enough? You know, how much do you want to have there? And depending on what your depth is, that your target is, maybe you have to put an outlet somewhere so you can drain that water off so it stays at that two or three foot level, right? I mean, I follow guys on YouTube all the time that are building these duck ponds and stuff in the south, and I'm super jealous because they look awesome, you know what I mean? But when you listen to them talk, they have a reason for everything that they're doing, right? They're putting a culvert here. They're putting an outlet here because they don't want the water level to get above this certain height and things like that in this location okay it's kind of lower on this sense the water's going to come here and drain off like i mean it all depends on what their their property is like what the what the topography is like you know what they have to work with and kind of what their overall goals are yeah they're very interesting and, and you, the good thing talking about water flow and movement i think that's critical i've got another question for you in a second but i want to get back to kind of thinking more about the vegetation in these kind of wetter areas and you know, what's your opinion on introducing cattails? Of, of course, the, you know, the aquatic wildlife, the, the animals that present themselves in those areas are going to bring seed sources in, right? And so you're going to get some yeah. naturalized and, and, and uh, unnaturalized seed sources just respectively depending on the areas that you select and the animals that, that come to those locations. But subsequent to that, when you're talking about building those locations, and I don't know why cattails just came to my mind, um, and they have a tendency, at least on the, I guess I would say, like kind of the, uh, they're on the emergent end of plants, right? They're kind of the edge of these kind of water areas. You know, the structure and benefit to to the overall concealment, um, you talked a little bit about kind of uh, brooding cover, et cetera. Like, what are you thinking about when it comes to vegetation in, in these particular areas, at least from a, a, like a more permanent structure, not just like a temporary, like we're talking about flood, flooded fields, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to the vegetation, it, again, it, it kind of depends on what my goals are. You know, now you bring up cattails and, and obviously there's, there's some invasive species that are out there that, you know, inherently you're going to deal with, right? Phalaris is another, you know, one of them, you know, the Phalaris and, um, or the, excuse me, the Phragmites, you know, which is what you see alongside roadways and stuff like that. When it comes to, you know, cattails, I don't get, I don't get too bent out of shape with cattails, to be honest with you, because they do provide some cover, you know, you know, red winged blackbirds, you know, they're going to utilize them like crazy, even though those birds drive me nuts. Um, especially during <laughs> the, and the males will, will follow you and they'll hover over top of you and they're just a new but, you know, it just goes to show that, you know, I don't mind having some of those in there because I see ducks utilize those areas. I see muskrats utilize those areas. I see, you know, turtles utilize those areas. I see a lot of species that utilize those areas. I mean, whether or not you like muskrats or not, I mean, they, they are a species that, that, you know, utilize those areas. So from an ecological benefit, they, they provide, you know, some benefit. You can look at Phragmites. I mean, Phragmites is an invasive species, but that stuff grows 10, 12 feet tall. I mean, it provides some cover. 
Um, the problem with invasives is that they are they are invasive in nature and they are very successful because of it. They outcompete for resources for native species and they can really take hold. So when I talk about vegetation, I tell people again, understand and it this goes for anything, whether it's a wetland system or just a, an early successional area. Know what you have out there. There are a lot of apps that are out there that use AI that are actually really good at identifying plant species um, is provided you give it a good picture, right? Um, so you can go out there and, and catalog, you know, to a pretty accurate degree what you have out there on your property. And I would say, hey, you know, if you're talking about, you know, uh, an early successional area, right, understand what my goals are. I want to manage for whitetails. I want my covered equal food, right? I don't want grasses out there because deer only grasses, right? So I want to go out there and I want to have, you know, native forbs that are six plus feet tall, good cover for deer, but it's also really good food resources. Same thing for my wetland areas, right? What What's my target species? If I'm looking at ducks, I don't, you don't need this tall vegetation, so I can eradicate it. But eradicating it comes with additional costs, right? Herbicides that are, you know, used around water resources, you know, are expensive, right? And things like that. If And if you, you know, hire somebody to do that, those individuals, because you're hiring them, have to have special licenses to work with aquatic herbicides. And, and you know, it's going to cost more to do that. So, you know, when it comes to managing the vegetation, knowing what you have out there on an existing area first and foremost if it's a if it's a wetland that you have on your property already well then like i said understanding what you have do you have a bunch of dogwoods dogwoods are phenomenal yeah. right there's endless amount of species that utilize dogwoods deer being one of them you know so it's like hey do i have a predominance of, of dogwoods the other great thing about dogwoods is that you can livestock you can livestock those you can cut off those things and plant them live stake them in other areas and start you know generating other densities of, of dogwoods yeah, you know, no, people, yeah huh. i think i think those are great additions and, and thinking about some yeah. of the the height the density the volume the ver- variety that you kind of just identified and thinking about the species you're trying to attract attract let me let me ask you this question and i don't i don't mean to go left on you but i want to bring up something um and this comes up quite a bit with various clients particularly uh right now dealing with drought and the concerns that people are having uh hemorrhagic disease midge that that bites the deer and eventually you know we have some we have some death as a result of that how do you design those well enough where you know there isn't those you know i guess we'll we'll say moist areas that that promote that midge what what are your thoughts about steep banking and you know access again we're we're talking about ducks but then other animals are going to access these areas and what what would be your way to kind of manage that particular issue yeah, that, that that can get a little bit broad. <laughs> um, so when it when it comes when it comes to EHD, I mean midges. I mean the really what you know larger bodies of water are not really the areas that the midges are going to breed in. I mean they really like the smaller, pocketed, stagnant, you know, kind of areas of water. And and those types of diseases, EHD, CWD, are what we call density dependent diseases. So. You know, what what you're going to run into, and when it comes to EHD, I mean, obviously EHD is a big concern in a lot of areas, especially in a drought. Um, I don't overly get too concerned about it. Um, I know it's a problem in a lot of areas. I have not run into it in all these years. I've been involved in years where here in Ohio we've had EHDs. 
your EHD issues. You know, I have not seen it on my property. Now, my properties are really spread out. I've got a lot of different habitat areas throughout a wider range of, of property. I've got, you know, neighbors that get involved. I've got, you know, things like that to where these deer aren't all hunkered down in one smaller property location, which is, you can run into some issues that way. And I don't know, I don't, off the top of my head, I don't really know of any, I'm, I'm sure it's been studied, but you know, you can imagine having a smaller property, let's say a 30 acre property, 40 acre property that's heavily managed for whitetails, real nice, dense, lush, early successional habitat, you know, things like that. It's surrounded by, you know, here in the Midwest agriculture, right? You're going to have pocketed areas of, of water that's being held along the landscape. It's going to, you know, these midges are gonna are gonna breed. They're gonna you know reproduce and, and thrive. If you have deer kind of localized to one or two smaller properties, well, you know it's a density dependent disease. If it happens to be in close proximity to a breeding area, then you know you might run into more of an issue. But if you, I, I think, you know, having you know larger scales of ecologically beneficial, you know, habitat spread out a lot wider. Um, if that's possibility, then I realize it's not a possibility for everybody, but you're not going to get the, the, the densities of, of resident herds, you know, on a, on a property as, as localized as you would if they were spread out. So EHD would not to say you're not going to see it become an issue, but it's going to be less likely of an issue because you, I mean, you might find a deer here and there, you know, I don't always get excited when I see people I, and I get people that send me photos all the time about a, a dead, you know, buck or something in the stream, you know, is my first guess, you know, something like EHD. Yes. But I'm just a data guy, you know, until I know for sure, you know, I, it could be, you know, it could have been an abscess, you know, from a sparring accident or something like that, that caused an infection infections cause fevers, you know? So it's, you know, it's one of those things to where I don't get too excited. Um, and I think, people get a little too excited on a larger scale. Not that the popular, or excuse me, not that the EHD is not an issue. It can be, but you know, I think if you have and focus on, you know, good quality habitat and uh, you know, especially have these larger bodies of water for water access that are again, you know, not these little pocketed stagnant areas and shaded areas, you know, I mean, you can imagine a, a little, a little pocketed hole of water that's maybe two inches deep in the middle of the woods that's under, you know, canopy coverage. It's cold, it's moist, it's wet. Like these are thriving areas for those types of insects. So it's, you know, I, I, I kind of, when I see those on my property, I just, I go over with a tiller and just, you know, get rid of it or I'll fill it in. I just, I don't want that stuff there. All right. So let me, let me ask you a more direct question. And, and these are, good topics really to bring up, I guess, unrelated to kind of where we're going. But if you're creating these pools, um, large is obviously critical. We talked about water management just there, for example, um, creating good flow and movement and then having dry areas adjacent to those. And then sunlight obviously is critical in that equation. Um, Steep banks would be another symptom or strategy I've, I've heard people recommend. And just thinking through this. So, you know, water holes can be a resource for deer, um, that doesn't pertain to what we we're talking about earlier with ducks, um, creating kind of these swath or swallow areas where a deer may prefer, maybe eliminate those in some capacity. 
Um, it's also adding vegetation into those areas as well that, that would actually, you know, consume or utilize that water and, and minimize the volume of open water. Um, and then in some of those areas we're seeing are kind of moist, it's kind of minimizing the, the terrestrial sites adjacent to those if kind of the water edge isn't managed correctly. And, and as you pointed out, you know, this density dependent issue, this disease issue that you know, would affect their populations and spreading them out across the landscape. Same thing with food plots or other resources. It's giving them, you know, vast opportunities in larger scale rather than smaller. And so I would just, you know, from a, I guess, a practical standpoint, a lot of people are putting these pools in and, um, you know, they're, they're leveraging, you know, water as a resource for deer. And obviously it's time dependent. Um, I think you can manage water across your landscape a lot better and have the resources being the plants at least for deer, for that matter, and yeah. uh, I think we can we can do a better job of, and, and that should really be the promotion uh, that that I'm trying to get across here in, in just my little monologue. But you know, what do you think about pools and all that kind of stuff that they're doing, water troughs, all that kind of stuff for deer, and and uh, the c- concern I just just brought up. Any any recommendations or thoughts on that? You know, this might not be popular opinion. You know, and I, I mean, I, I really don't care. I mean, yeah. it's what I what I do. <laughs> I, I, don't, like so, <laughs> I, I don't really utilize water troughs and stuff like that a whole lot. Now, a lot of that could be, you know, where I am, right? Where I am in Ohio, I mean, I'm about an hour, hour and a half, depending on where you start, you know, south, southeast of Lake Erie. So in my proper, in my, in here in Ohio, in northeast Ohio, we have no shortage of tributaries. We have no shortage of perennial and intermittent streams that have water year round. Right. And with those comes some semi, you know, again, wetlands don't have to have water. But what happens is, is in order for, you know, a wetland to be a wetland or a riparian area, floodplain area, those areas like that, you're going to have the vegetative benefits of a wetland there, but you're not going to have the standing water. Right. But you're going to have water in the ground in the groundwater because that's, you know, those plants need those resources, right? They need those types of things. So when you have those areas are typically in, you know, the forested systems, right? The floodplains as a tributary moves through the woods, those are cooler areas, right? I mean, those areas are going to have, you know, not as stunted of vegetative, you know, vegetative growth is what we're dealing now with the hot temperatures. I was at a property, you know, on my, on my, uh, behind my house, I was just walking around the woods with my dogs and you know the one tributary there it's it's you know pretty still green you know back there on the floodplain because you know it's a cool moist area back there it's you know closed canopy system it's not my property but you know it's it's shaded and you know there's things back there and as I walk around I see plenty of you know browse and and uh, browse impact I see from deer and, and even from rabbits and things like that that are back there. So, you know, I, I see those things back there. And again, you would know, deer, it's that preformed water. I try to not use water holes or troughs as much as possible because, you know, it's, it's just an issue that if I do run into something like EHD and I do have an EHD positive deer coming through my property, I don't want them drinking out of the water hole that maybe four or five, six, whatever other deer are going to be drinking out of that could potentially cause a problem. Now, you know, if I'm in a place that absolutely needs water because it's just always a drought or, or Hey, I want to use water. Okay. That's fine. Just have a plan. You, you need to have a maintenance plan for it as well. You need to change that water. You can't let that water sit for like, yeah, I'm just going to go out there and let it sit for two, three years. And you know, <laughs> just not, just not touching it. Right. I mean, it's, it's, you got to maintain the water. Otherwise you're going to have, 
you know, issues and things growing inside that water. Now, maybe it's not a big deal, you know, but you don't want your dog getting into it either. You don't want a neighbor's dog getting into it either. You know, uh, example, my sister's got a really, really small uh, pond in her backyard. And it's probably literally, I'm not kidding, probably literally only like 20 yards long by maybe, you know, 10 yards wide. It's basically a depression that's back there, but it's got stagnant water and algae on top of it. Well, you start worrying about blue-green algae and things like that are growing that'll kill your dog in a heartbeat, you know, things like that. So, you know, going in there and, and, you know, places like that and removing that water, doing a little bit of excavation, you know, and, and maintaining that area and getting rid of that. I mean, yeah, there's water on that property. If I see it from an aerial view, oh, look at that. Good. There's water there. But if I go get boots on the ground, look at that. I'm like, oh, we got a problem, right? This is this is not good. This is not a good water source. Now, are there species of reptiles and things living in there? Absolutely. But I'm not interested in that if I'm managing my property for whitetails. I want to have good water source. I have dogs. I want to be able to enjoy my property with my dogs. I don't want them getting sick. I mean, there's all these different things that for me, I have goals with, and, and I'm not limited on water. Like I said, I've got streams and intermittent streams and perennial streams running through, you know, multiple uh, areas surrounding my property. My deer are getting water. So right now, even though it's a drought, I mean, there are small perennial streams and intermittent streams that have water that they're getting water. So it's, for me, it's not a huge emphasis. It's, it's, it's an emphasis, but it's lower priority for me. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. You know, one point I want to bring up and you, you, you brought this up when you're talking about going for a walk and uh, an observatory thing and something that I've paid attention to. And I know there's been studies on it, um, but taking a look at the vegetation preferences, you could have a plant that's on a terrestrial site and a plant that's on an aquatic site and it's, it's eaten in the aquatic site more times than not as compared to the terrestrial site. It's thinking a little bit more in depthly about that. Uh, Greenbrier is a good example. I've seen that on multiple properties where it's been adjacent to more, I guess, uh, areas that are a little more moist. So water management or moisture management is critical. And it's thinking about how to kind of in place maybe these intermediate streams or, you know, small areas that, that have more water resources available to them. Or in my example, wetting the landscape and thinking, you know, how you leverage ponds in order to kind of propagate, you know, water, I guess, uh, in this case, uh, across different areas that may you know, have more preferential plants to kind of those riparian areas, et cetera. And then you brought up a, another point of just taking a, taking note of these stagnant areas and recognizing, you know, the problems that they create, at least water-wise, and thinking, you know, if you're going to create like a water resource, I can think of a client that I worked with uh, a year or so ago, and um, we developed a, um, a water kind of retention system in an area that was specifically for deer it was a water trough area and um, it collected water we ditched out a bunch of you know small stream beds into this particular area and we dammed it up with rocks but it had good flow through it and every single deer and its brother kind of hooked into that area and i was just like you know this is an easy like easy manageable you know area where you're not putting this you know black you know i guess pond liner in the ground that the deer gotta you know utilize and and, um, you know, you can always throw a pond liner in an area like that just to retain if you don't have clay soil. But I, I just was kind of thinking about, you know, your example there of, you know, what water does across the landscape and, you know, how it may make, you know, the opportunity for certain nutrients to be more available, 
you know, through the plant to the deer. And in this case, obviously the preform water, you know, it's, it's benefit to the individual, you know, animal species, et cetera. So I, I guess I just want to add my two cents into that. I have, yeah. another, I got another question for you. So yep. in, in these open water areas, and I remember, you know, watching, uh, probably a lot of people have paid attention to this is uh, duck potato. I see duck potato being planted. It's kind of an emergent species. So it's kind of on the edge of the water. Um, I think it's rhizomial or, yeah, I think that's what it is. I've not planted. I have done some recommendations on client properties, but, you know, kind of putting it on the edge of the water, planting this for, I think, ducks and deer. Um, is there any like crossover species that you're thinking of that may be a benefit to, to duck and deer that, that you could plant in, in wetter areas like that? Off the top of my head, not really. I'm sure, I'm sure there <laughs> yeah. are, um, but, you know, not really. Cause, I mean, a lot of the stuff, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's an interesting question. I don't, I don't know, like duck potato and species like that. You know, more of the the herbaceous type of stuff, um, the broadleaf wetland and aquatic plants. I, I don't, I, I don't imagine that deer are going to eat a lot of that stuff. I mean, if you look at if you look at duck potato and things, I mean that that's that's a really aquatic plant. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, things along the outer edges of the marginal areas of a wetland. I mean, a deer is not going to go wading into a wetland just to get food. Like they're not going to, they're not going to do that. Yeah. Uh, you know, ducks will. Yeah. I mean, as far as that goes, I'm trying to think. Um, well, I can, I can, I, are, I can tell you one that I've seen on multiple properties is uh, yellow marsh marigold. I mean, deer hammer yeah. that plant. Um, oh yeah, 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 you know, but those are kind I'm of in like to... little streamways that are like kind of leading to maybe more of a, a wetland area. You know, the, that's where I've seen uh, them across the landscape. Yeah, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to think in in my area with all the ducks I've killed and and opened up. You know what they're feeding on. I mean, obviously the ducks around here are real grain heavy. I mean, just on the landscape, we're we're packed with grains. You know, over here, not not to say there's not grasses and stuff in there, um, and stuff like that too. There is. Deer generally don't eat grasses. Like the example I gave with jewelweed, I, I don't think I've ever seen a duck eat jewelweed. Um, it just gets pretty tall, and when those bulbs kind of pop out, um, I'm just trying to think here. Yeah, yeah. I, I, off the top of my head, no, I'm, I'm not. Like, no, no. That, yeah, I can't think of any. But yeah, it's it's you know talking about the different types of vegetation. I mean, you know. When you're outletting areas, again, when you talk about wetlands, they don't have to have standing water. And you can outlet an area of water, standing water, you know, to a, a wider dispersed area. And, you know, you could form, you know, a, a change in the soil there. I mean, that's what really what a wetland is. A wetland, you know, in the, in the most broad description is an area that holds water. I think, I think the number is 70 or 80% of the year. So that water doesn't have to be visible water. It could be held in the soil, right, in the aquatic or in the, in the water table, right? So you've got a higher clay soil, higher clay component soil. It's got a much smaller pore space. Therefore, it's holding water for longer periods of time. If it holds that water for 70% of the time, you're going to start seeing a change in the soil chemistry. You're going to start seeing the oxidation reduction of iron in the soil, and then with the increased nutrients, you're going to see these what we call hydrophytic plants that are going to grow in these wetland areas. So when you see species like jewelweed and other, you know, wetland obligate plants, those are what we call hydrophytes. Those are plants that can tolerate the influx of nutrients from, a, from the landscape. That's why wetlands are called the kidneys of the landscape. Just like our kidneys filter out stuff in our body and excrete it, 
It's the same thing that wetlands do ecologically. They capture the stormwater runoff and the nutrients that it's carrying across the landscape, higher phosphorus, higher nitrogen, potassium, whatever it is. And those plants can grab that water, filter out that nutrients, and utilize those nutrients to grow. They tolerate the higher excess of those nutrients. So that way, when the water gets filtered back to, let's say, the stream, right, it's been filtered by that ecological wetland on the floodplain, you know, capturing that runoff. So, you know, that's why a lot of those species, are, I think, are more preferable uh, or get hit by deer, you know, as an example, because they do have higher you know, components of, of uh, micronutrients and stuff in there just based on the natural ecology of what a, a wetland actually does across the landscape. Yeah, and, and let me let me add my two cents to this. This is a nine, non-science uh, bit, bit of data, but really important to people. After a heavy rain, you'll notice in a lot of these areas, at least I've noticed this a lot on the landscape, I use that as a means to diagnose where deer are going to be, particularly if it's, it's very dry. Certain plants that they prefer, obviously in the landscape, would be their go-to you know, we're talking native natural plants on the, across the landscape. But in moist areas or when you have a lot of rain and it collects in these areas, you'll notice movement cycles vary for deer. One of the things I've seen over the years is you've got a drought and then heavy rain, and you'll notice their movement increase, you know, just after that rain in a large, large scale. And it's plain that rain benefit to the plant life and the food, you know, Food takes up some of those water elements, and obviously the, the, the animal now is able to digest a higher water concentration in that leaf, etc. And so that's as it evapotranspirates or whatever is going on with that particular plant. So its utilization may change depending on the type of plant, how accessible it has to water resources, and obviously deer's preferences. Um, some will have more toxicity than, than others. So regardless of the water state, they may not prefer a particular plant. But it's thinking a little bit more about the water benefit, I think, uh, and, and deer movement. Because there's a correlation yeah. there that I've seen over the years, at least at least from, from observatory circumstances. I, I don't know if they've they've studied that, but but I, I've certainly seen I'm that. I'm sure somebody has, man. Yeah. I mean, you think about it. I mean, that's why deer, you know, we categorize them not as browsers or foragers. We call it their concentrate selectors is really kind of how we categorize them is because, you know, if you're talking about, you know, uh, well, I tell people, we talk about observation data, right? So I, I tell people, all right, you see a bunch of deer in your bean field, right? Go out there when they leave and look. Well, why isn't every bean hammered, right? You go through there and you're going to see some that are still standing, some that haven't been touched and some that areas that got nailed, right? You know, it, it, it's curious. I, I, I know there's been studies on some of this, but, you know, they look at the nutrient density, like at that plant, like they can, they can sense these things. And it's, it's extraordinary to watch them because you'll watch through, you know, areas of like the impatience, like I was talking about, I'll see areas where, you know, they are just absolutely like this whole five foot has just been nuked. And then there's a couple here and there that's not, and then it picks back up again for another two feet and it's nuked. It's like, well, why didn't you eat those ones that were right there? Why, why are those dozen plants not touched? Right. And you start looking at it and you're like, it's, it's, it's amazing how they can tell, you know, what to eat when, you know, timing. I mean, you look at the old research study, I forget who did the, the who did the study, but you know, when, uh, doing the telemetry study of, of, uh, doe every year in the springtime or whatever it was earlier, early spring, um, mid spring, I can't remember, but they would see this doe that just would take the, this long excursion every year, 
and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, so I might be getting some details wrong here, but enough to get you the gist of the story on how good they are. It's like they, this doe has picked up this long excursion, and, and the researcher was like, what the heck's going on? Like, this is totally not normal sure. for this. And then they investigated, and they found a spring, a natural spring that was high in, in, in uh, nutrients, right, just from the ground. And they would go there. It was like basically like this big mineral lick, this big mineral site. And every year, you know, this doe must have learned from her mom because then they started seeing, you know, as the as the other uh, uh, does and, and things, the fawns started getting older, they started doing the same thing because they learned from their mom, like, where to go. This time of the year, here we go. Like, they go here. So, you know, their ability to send things are, are just absolutely extraordinary i've always told people if deer are any smarter we'd never kill them yeah i agree because, that that associate yeah. education that you're talking about with deer and i've seen yeah. this over time where a deer teaches a deer something else you you get to see you get to see the lineage of that we just yeah, had, we just had a cool podcast previous to this one about remineralizing the earth and thinking more holistically about your property and so you're like nailing some key topics so i'm just want to reinforce that prior podcast that we did um, myself and Dan Kittredge did and that was that was pretty interesting we're way past our time I am I'm really enjoying this conversation Eric you're so interesting and intelligent man this is so great um I want to ask just one one more thing about ducks and I think yeah. you know we, we talked about managed sites with a little more moisture we're talking about species specifically um seed species or plant species that you would like to have on the landscape planted um what do you typically you know the millets what, what do you typically put on the landscape for ducks people like to plant uh, adjacent to kind of these water areas that we talked about earlier i mean yeah millets are, are a good one um i i look at like duck weeds and things like that like the aquatic plants you know there's a lot of them that are out there there's not really a whole lot that to be honest, I don't plant a whole lot for waterfowl. Okay. Um, I've got some commercial blends um, that I've, there's a, there's a seed uh, distributor that's here local. Um, they do a lot of different species and they've got a really good, uh, let me see if I can look it up here. Um, species. And I haven't planted it in a couple of years, to be honest with you, because it's, uh, you know, stuff that's already been taken, taken hold of. But so merit seed, uh, merit seed company okay. uh, here in Ohio, they, they actually have a mallard mix. Um, that's the one, you know, I typically use, I, I can't remember what's all in there. It's a multi-species, but I know there's millet, there's sorghums and, and things like that in there. Um, most of the, most of the companies won't put their entire mix that's on there. I, I have to pull a bag to see exactly what's on there, but yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the sorghums, the millets, um, you know, the aquatic plants like duckweed and things like that. But, you know, you, you don't have to go crazy with, with, uh, you know, these species, but if you had a good mixture of the, of the millets and, and the sorghums, it's always done well. And it's going to be good for other species of, of avian species other than just waterfowl. I mean, turkeys are going to hit that too and, and things like that because of the seed heads and, and everything like that that are going to establish on those plants are, are pretty hefty and obviously a good uh, nutritional resource. So, um, yeah, sorry. Anybody interested, you feel free to reach out to me. I can give you some more. I have notebooks full of uh, – you know, things that I put down, but off the top of my head, I just haven't planted for waterfowl in a little while because I haven't had to. So I just, I can only keep so much information in my head. I tell people, <laughs> so it's like, it's like, I don't, if I just specialized in one species, it'd probably be a little bit easier, but I'm like, my God, man, I'm doing waterfowl predators, environmental permitting, like rules. I mean, just, Oh my God, the amount of information that I consume every day. I'm like, I got a <laughs> my hard drive. I start pushing stuff out. I'll come back to that later. Yeah, no. <laughs> Oh, understandable. I'm, yeah. I, I thought you added quite a bit to this conversation, and, and we, we've got more to come from you.
you and I were, yeah. you know, we're just kind of hitting the high notes, getting everybody introduced to you. And I, I think this is, this is a great start. I think a lot of good information in here and, uh, you know, certainly I'm excited to have you back on and, uh, in a bit and talk more about, uh, whatever we decide. Yeah, man, for sure. Um, anytime. All right, Eric, um, again, let me just push your podcast. So why don't you just, where can people find you, get a hold of you and your podcast? Yeah, so the podcast name is Hunt Science Podcast. You can find us on on YouTube, our YouTube channel, where we do all all of our episodes are both audio and video. So if you want to, if you if you're like me, I like to do my pod, I like to view my podcasts as well as listen to them. Um, so you can go to our YouTube channel. You can find all of our episodes on there. If you're only you know audio, then you can find us on all the major podcasting platforms. Just type in Hunt Science Podcast, and you'll find us. Like I said, on Apple and Google Podcasts, Amazon. Spotify. Um, yeah, we we're pretty much found everywhere. So yeah, that's awesome. And I'm happy to have you on this podcast as well. And so, uh, it's great to share good information and, uh, we'll talk again soon. Yeah, man. I appreciate it. Thanks. All right. See ya. Bye. Maximize your hunt is a production of whitetail landscapes for more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt. Check out whitetail landscapes dot com.